Our good Father, we pray that your word would be like rain that falls on thirsty ground and that it would bring life to us as we hear. And it's in your name we pray. So every day we're hearing more and more about the Ukrainian refugee crisis. And I believe at this point, around 4 million uh, people have fled for safety. But what that means is that around 40 million people are still there in Ukraine. And uh, from what we can see on television, it is a country that is being torn apart by war. So there are mothers, fathers, children there who have not been able to flee and who have stayed. And what this means is that every morning for them, they are all waking up in a war zone, in a high-risk territory, this place where the stakes is high. And and as the fight is raging, they continue to ask of a watching world, who will fight for us? Will anyone fight for us? And as we walk through the book of Exodus together, Israel, the nation, is facing these similar challenges. We are in trouble. We are not in power. We need help. And who, if anyone, will come and fight for us? And what we see in this passage before us is a God who looks at this people and says, I will. I will fight for you. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. There's no shortage of of bad examples uh, in fighting in which people just turn against each other in cruel ways. But there is also a, a good kind of fighting of taking up the cause of someone in need and doing whatever you can do to help them. If God is going to rescue Israel, and if God is going to rescue us, then God is going to have to fight for us. And that's what we see this morning. We're going to see God fighting for his people in three very specific ways. God fights for his people in love. God fights for his people in power. And God fights for his people in Jesus. So God fighting for his people, love, power, Jesus. And along the way, what it all means for us. So first, God fights for his people in love. There are four words spoken by God that are repeated over and over and over again throughout uh, not only this portion of Exodus, but also before and after. And these four words are spoken with intensity and with conviction. They are spoken in confrontation and they are spoken in challenge. And these four words are simply let my people go. These words are directed at Pharaoh, but these words are not at their heart about what God is fighting against. They are mostly about what God is fighting for. Let my people, let my people go. 
These are God's people that he has set his everlasting love upon, and they are in trouble. They are enslaved. This is what we've been seeing over the past few weeks. They are beaten down. They are victims of terrible violence, even against the youngest in their community, against their very own children. And they are in trouble, and they are helpless to do anything about it. And they need someone to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. They need a God who will fight for them. Remember, back in chapter 3, what God said to Moses, he said, I've seen the affliction of my people, and I've heard their cry, and I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them. What I hope you hear even now in those words is a strong love that says, I see you, I hear you, and I am coming for you. But for the people of Israel, when they hear this, their suffering is so strong that that news seems like it is too good to be true. And God doubles down on his promise. You'll remember in chapter 6, this repetition, I will. He says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you Why I am the Lord. Those are powerful statements that are not said lightly, which brings up the question, who is this people that God would say these things about them, that God would show such commitment and such devotion? Chapter 19, God says, these these people are my treasured possession. They're, They're treasured to me. They're prized. Chapter 4 gets even more intimate where God says, this people... They are my firstborn son. So that what we are hearing in this confrontation with Pharaoh, let my people go, we are hearing a fierce parental love. A kind of love that says, I will do whatever it takes to rescue you. If you haven't seen the movie Taken, uh, it's about a young girl who's been abducted on an overseas trip, and she finds herself trapped in this this web of powerful crime lords, and she's going to be trafficked and sold and really lost forever to everyone who who cares about her, everyone she knows and loves. And all all looks like it's lost, except for she has a father who, who vows to do whatever it takes to find her and bring her back. And when he's on the phone with, with one of the captors, he says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have is a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired in a long career, skills that make me a nightmare to people like you. If you let my daughter go now, That will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you and I will find you. And that's basically what he does. And at the end, there's he meets the man who's behind it all. It's kind of this it's this rich businessman, and he tries to make the excuse as he's dying. Uh, it wasn't personal, it was all business. You remember how the dad replies? He said, it was personal to me. 
this fight that we see God entering into is deeply personal. Because he is fighting for who he loves, his people, his treasure. God fights for his people in love. But even more than that, God fights for his people in power, which brings us to our second point. It's one thing to have a heart that cares and concerns. There's so much that we want to do for the people of Ukraine and things that we will be doing that Saber's going to be sharing about after the service. But there's still a sense of helplessness. If God is going to fight for us, there has to be power to it as well. And this rescue plan that that God is unfolding, if you will remember, has not gotten off to a great start. This is not the first time that Moses has gone to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. The first time he went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and said, let my people go, Pharaoh just said no. God didn't do anything, and then Pharaoh made life incredibly harder for them. Their suffering was made worse, but the story doesn't end there. Moses is sent back. And at the beginning of chapter 7, the beginning of this kind of plague section from 7 to 10, Moses is told what's going to happen. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will bring my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment, and they will know that I am the Lord. So what we see in chapter 7 through 10 is these series of calamities or plagues. Water turns to blood. Swarms of frogs, gnats over the land, flies fill the land, livestock is killed, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. And we could, and some have done this, and we could spend nine weeks going through each of these different plagues, but there's something uh, that is common to all of them. There is a cycle and a series. And so we are just looking at the seventh because it, it gives us a good picture of, of what God is doing in his heart for his people. Each one of these events has a message and the message is this God the Lord is in charge in every one of these plagues there is an area of natural creation of which God puts his finger on on and says yes I am Lord of that Uh, yes I am Lord of that yes I am Lord of even that God is showing in these events his power over all of creation but it's even more than that because in this culture, the, the realm of nature was divided up into different areas in which different deities had control over them. So in the land of Egypt, you had a plethora of many gods, and each had a designated authority over a certain aspect of this. And so in each of these plagues, God is putting his finger on these areas and saying, no, they are not God. I am God. No, they are not God. I am God. They are not God. I am God. It builds up to the ninth plague that that taps into their most precious and revered God, the God of the sun, Ray. And what we see in the ninth plague is what? 
darkness. Even over your most important and powerful deity, I myself am Lord over. One by one, God is putting his finger, showing that he is the one with the power, who has the power to fight for his people. But we see his power at work, not just on a, a, a very cosmic scale, but also on a very personal scale, showing that he's also God of the human heart as well. There's a repeated theme that if, if we were able to read through all the different plagues, you would see this cycle of something happens inside Pharaoh, and it has to do with the hardening of his heart. And part of what makes it difficult to understand what's happening is the different ways in these nine cycles that it's described. Sometimes it's described as Pharaoh's heart is just hard. Sometimes it's described as Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And other times it's described as in the latter plagues as God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So what is happening? What I don't think is happening is like what happens in the movie Inception, if you've seen that, where they're, they're, they're working in this dream world where they go into dreams and what they're trying to do is either extract ideas or, or do what's called Inception, and that is plant new ideas with the hopes that these new ideas, these foreign ideas new to the host will grow and, and change. God is not planting new ideas that are very foreign to Pharaoh. What we've already seen in the narrative throughout is that Pharaoh is already acting on his own will against the people, doing violence, doing oppression. And what God is doing is handing him over to what is already there. Oftentimes when we think about God's wrath, and we don't talk about it a lot, but we tend to have this picture of uncontrolled rage. But when you, when you look at how his wrath is portrayed, especially in Romans 1, where, where, where Paul, he goes into depth on how God's wrath is being revealed. Do you remember how he describes it? He describes people's wayward hearts and then God handing them over to what they want. Three times. So there's a waywardness, and then verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their own hearts. That leads to more waywardness, which leads to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions, which leads to more waywardness, which leads to another, verse 28. And since they still did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. The worst thing that God can do for us is give us over to our own desires with what we want, our substitutes. Okay. If you've ever, uh, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, it, it's a powerful um, imaginary tale uh, of what this looks like in action, where they take this uh, they take this bus ride. Uh, it's actually people from hell take a bus ride into heaven and, and it shares their experience and how um, it's, 
it's their hearts are resistant. It's these, it's these pictures of these people who are so much given over to their own desires, their own wayward desires, that even heaven is not appealing to them. Their hearts are resistant to it. And at one point, as one of the um, kind of the guides is guiding this person, he says there, there are only two types of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will, your will be done. And those to whom God says to them, thy will be done. What we see here is God saying to Pharaoh, your will be done. You want to crush these people? You want to hold them in slavery? You want to destroy them? Go at it. But I'm not going to let that happen. It's a story of of fierce love. And it's a story that Paul brings out in our New Testament lesson, which is actually one of the most controversial, probably the most controversial chapter in all of Scripture, because it deals with some of these questions of sovereignty, of God being in control. Of what, what does that look like? Is God just? Is he unfair? What does it mean for us? But it's interesting at the end of that passage in your bulletin is this quote from the book of Hosea, which if you'll remember, it's this love story of God pursuing his wayward people who are compared to a prostitute. It's giving their love to all other lovers, and God is relentlessly pursuing them. And and what God says here in, in Hosea is that he is going to expand his pursuing love so that it's going to go towards all the nations. Look at the quote. He says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And those who are not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. How does that rescue kind of rescue that includes us happen? This brings us to our final point. God fights for us in love. He fights for us in power. But most importantly, he fights for us in Jesus. Exodus is the story of God bringing his people out of slavery, of rescuing them in order to bring them into a relationship with As one of my seminary professors said, Exodus is about two words, rescue and relationship. You could say that's the story of the whole Bible, about God rescuing a people whose problem runs deeper than slavery in a foreign land. Who is rescuing them at great cost to himself in order to bring them into a relationship with himself and to be a part of his kingdom that he is building. And what we see is this is not an easy task. If God is going to rescue us, he is going to have to fight for us. He's going to have to be like that fierce love of a parent that says, I will do whatever it takes to bring you to myself. And this is exactly what he does in Jesus. And Jesus, God is saying, I'm going all in. All the chips, I'm pushing them all in for you in order to bring you back to myself. In Jesus, God is breaking into our world in a way like never before, in order to fight for us in a way like never before. This entry, this invasion, 
this incarnation is said again and again to be an act of love, of loving pursuit, of a parent's loving pursuit. But it's also an act of power. The Gospel of Mark brings this out particularly well. When Jesus shows up, he says, the kingdom of God is near, and I want you to repent and believe the good news. He begins then to manifest his power. Do you, do you remember what you see? We see scenes of, of wind and waves threatening those that he loves and Jesus and his power saying, be still. We, we see Jesus encountering sickness and suffering. And he puts his hands on people and he says, be well. We see people whose lives are dominated by the powers of evil. And Jesus speaks words of power saying, be gone. We see people weighed down with guilt, with shame. And Jesus in power says, you are forgiven. And Jesus sees people who, no matter how hard they try, they cannot escape death. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Though someone die, believes in me, will live. Jesus the, the plagues were these works of decreation and judgment. As Jesus comes and works these miracles, he is making creation whole. That is the rescue. But in order for this victory to be sure, to really win for us, Jesus must lose. Let that sink in. To win for us, Jesus must lose. The cross is Jesus facing the ultimate defeat for us, paying the ultimate price, making the ultimate sacrifice in order to somehow win this battle for us. It may not feel in our lives that, that God is fighting and winning all the battles that we want, but on the cross we look and see that Jesus has fought and won the battle that we needed to rescue us and to bring us into a relationship with him and life in his kingdom now and forever. This is good news. Let's pray. Our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for your fierce parental love that says, let my people go. And who pays the price for our release, the redemption cost that we might be yours. Father, would you soften our hearts and not give us over to our wayward desires, but through your spirit, work in us a renewing work that you would be the one that we want more than everything and that you would be our treasure because of the blood of your son you have made us yours and it's in his name we pray amen